you know, we like to talk about how when our HMP flex rig rolled onto site, that was a crew that was used to drilling oil and gas wells. And it took us, you know, a couple hours of basically safety training in a shack on site to train them about what we were doing and what the operations were. And then they got to work just as they always would. And there was actually a surprisingly huge amount of pride on site that these guys were using their skills, what they know, what they have a high capability of doing on a day-to-day basis, but to do it for a different purpose of drilling zero carbon energy wells. Oil and gas workers taking pride in developing renewable energy resources sounds incredible. Now couple that with the potential to produce power 24 hours a day without dependence on the wind or sun, and you may have what may be an ideal renewable energy source. That is the potential of geothermal energy, but so far it has been slow to develop. Today we are talking with Sarah Jewett, the Director of Strategy at Fervo Energy, a Houston, Texas-based next-generation geothermal company that is using technologies like horizontal drilling to unlock new geothermal resources and accelerate their development. Sarah breaks down the hurdles the industry has faced to date, Fervo's unique approach, the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act, and the potential to transition parts of the oil and gas workforce to renewables. Let's dive in. Welcome, everyone. This is Ned Downey, PhD student in public affairs at Princeton. And this is Ben Knoll, first year MBA student at Wharton. And today on The Current, we're joined by Sarah Jewett. She's Director of Strategy at Fervo Energy. Fervo is a startup developing next-generation geothermal resources to provide 24-7 carbon-free electricity. She came to Fervo in 2020 after building her career first in oil and gas at Schlumberger and Select Energy Partners. So Sarah, welcome to the Wharton Current. Thanks. Nice to be here. Good to have you too. So tell more about your background and what brought you to Fervo. I am a trained mechanical engineer. I went to Dartmouth for undergrad. Spent five years there, did my full victory lap before moving out to Rock Springs, Wyoming, where I ran hydraulic fracturing crews for Schlumberger. And when we say the field, I was really in the field running frack crews, did a lot of manual labor, worked a lot of night shifts and blizzards, and really wanted to go into the belly of the beast to learn about the what about in fossil fuels and how it works. So that was sort of the goal. The goal all along was to land my career in renewable energy, but I wanted to ensure that I had the full picture prior to doing so. So I worked four years for Schlumberger as a field engineer. Then I went to Harvard Business School, rival to Wharton, and left there to go to Select Energy Services, where I worked in strategy and corporate development for a year before joining Perfect. Can you give us a level set on the state of the geothermal industry today? How much energy is currently being produced? What are the different types of geothermal energy? Just give our audience a chance to really understand what's going on in the space. So I think it's important to level set that geothermal has been a pretty small industry for a really long time and really slow growing. Geothermal represented as early as the 1800s when Boise built a direct use heating system from geothermal energy to heat the city, but it's not something that's a really well-known household name in the renewable energy space. Today, geothermal energy only provides about 0.4% of U.S. electricity mix, and that's a total between 35 and 3,800 megawatts. So most of those projects that contribute to that 4 gigawatts have been built 
really 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. So it's not something that has experienced meaningful growth in the last couple of decades. So it's something that people, when you go talk to them, they think it's sort of a sleeping, old, quiet industry that has nothing new going on. But the reason we're talking today is because it's really changing at this point in time. So also to level set would be good to quickly review the types of geothermal energy. I'm focused on geothermal power development, which is using geothermal resources underneath the ground to generate electricity. But there's also a pretty substantial interest in geothermal for direct use heating. I have a call later today with Cornell. They're working on a direct use system where they're using geothermal to heat their campus. And then there's also geothermal for residential heating and cooling. And that is installing heat pumps in your yard or in your community to give heating and cooling to the entire community. So those are the three types of geothermal. We're going to talk hopefully mostly about electricity production here. I'll use a couple different terms that we can define as we move forward. Right on. Yeah, I think that that description of kind of a sleeping giant is one that I definitely feel in my mind. I get this feeling that geothermal just gets less attention than other types of low carbon energy these days. And that's venture, policy, other spheres. It seems like wind, solar, or even less mature ones, though, like hydrogen infusion, sometimes get more buzz, they get more interest. So, you know, you're in geothermal right now. What do you think is going on there? Why don't we hear about it more? And what are maybe some of the hurdles that geothermal faces that explain it? Well, first off, I think you're right, Ned, that it has been a sleeping industry. Now, one interesting part about what you said is sleeping giant. I think giant has long been debated about geothermal energy. Is it actually an electricity source or an energy source that has vast potential, or is it something that's geographically limited? So for the longest time, geothermal power development has really been limited from a geographic perspective to these naturally occurring geothermal reservoirs, not unlike conventional oil and gas, where you can stick a straw into the ground and pull oil out. And then we started getting into these harder to reach spots and ultimately ended in the shale revolution where we know there are hydrocarbon bearing rocks, but we have to go through horizontal drilling and large scale hydraulic fracturing in order to access that hydrocarbon. Geothermal is actually not dissimilar. So geothermal 1.0, you can sort of stick a straw into the ground, think about a hot spring, and you can pull up steam. Those reservoirs are actually pretty limited and pretty hard to manage. The geysers in California, one of the largest geothermal producing assets in the U.S., actually started that way. And then geothermal 2.0 is sort of like, okay, maybe you're not directly pulling steam out of the ground, but you're sticking two straws into the ground. You're hitting a really big crack that already exists, and you're pushing water through one across that naturally existing crack and up the other one, and you're pulling up steam or hot water in order to generate electricity. Even that, though, is still pretty geographically specific because you need a hot reservoir with a lot of existing cracks, and you have to be able to actually go hit those cracks when you drill. And so what we're looking at and what Furbo is really exploring right now is, is more of in the geothermal 3.0 world. And that's why we use the term next gen. And that's because we're looking for reservoirs that are hot, but not necessarily as hot as what we've previously explored. And we're not looking at these geographically constrained, very specific permeability reservoirs that have a lot of naturally existing fractures. Instead, we're looking at places with hot rock at a reasonable depth that can now be accessed because of advancements in oil and gas technology from the shale revolution. And you can drill horizontally in them. You can create flow pathways from one well to the next, create your own underground radiator in order to build a more predictable geothermal system. So that's where we are today. 
the reason that it's been so slow going for such a long time is one, the drilling technology hasn't really existed to be really, really precise. And so people have found these geographically constrained areas and they've thrown half-hearted drilling technology at them and been able to extract from one place to the next, but they've sort of been one-off projects and we're trying to change that. You mentioned a bit about what Fervo is doing today. What's your vision timeline for scaling into the future? We're in it today. So today we are working on completing a five megawatt commercial demonstration in Northern Nevada. And this is the one we got a lot of early press about because we're ultimately selling the power to Google. That is a project that is at an existing geothermal facility. And so we are deploying our subsurface innovative technique, which I'll get back to that in just a second. Now we have officially signed three power purchase agreements with California Community Choice Aggregators, which are sort of like California utilities, they're load serving entities. And we have a power purchase agreement with East Bay Community Energy to provide 40 megawatts of power from a Northern Nevada site and 20 megawatts of power from a southwestern Utah site to a conglomerate of Southern California CCAs. And then we have a PPA for 33 megawatts to deliver power to CPA in California, also from that southwestern Utah project. So we are transitioning from a group that's working on technology proof of concept in a commercial setting to full-blown commercial scaling. So we're in the thick of it today. The delivery of those first projects are in 2026 and 2028. And so that's the typical timeline for developing a geothermal power project. Let me jump on something that you mentioned here. Talk a little bit more about what your guys' drilling technology looks like and what kind of cost profile does that allow you guys to produce electricity at, particularly in comparison to some of the other clean energy technologies that are out there? One of the gripes about geothermal in the past is that it's a much more expensive energy. And so if you look at solar and wind power purchase agreements today, you're really looking at the $30 to $40 a megawatt hour range. And that's not necessarily true of wind. It gets a little bit higher than that, depending on where the wind is coming from. Geothermal today is recognized to be able to sell power between $65 to $85 a megawatt hour, which is clearly more expensive. But it's a little bit misguided to compare them on an apples to apples basis because you're looking at wind and solar, which are both considered variable renewable energies because they are weather dependent. And you're looking at geothermal, which has a greater than 90% capacity factor, produces all the time and does not rely on any sort of weather in order to produce. So it's much more related to a base load power source than either wind and solar. And so if you think about a geothermal contract being two or three times that of an existing solar or wind contract, but it's going to produce two to three times as much in a full day, then you start to understand that the economics are not quite as poor as the market makes them sound. Now, geothermal also hasn't had the opportunity to come down any kind of meaningful deployment cost curve like wind and solar, which have been deploying, deploying, deploying under really favorable subsidy environments for the last 20 years. Only through the IRA did geothermal energy end up on a level playing field with solar from a subsidy perspective. And I think that there are a couple of different mechanisms that are trying to jumpstart geothermal's momentum today that will really allow us to come down a pretty meaningful cost curve and compete with wind and solar. Now, the second part of your question, Ned, was about our drilling technology. So I touched on it before, but Fervo is looking to drill horizontally 
therefore accessing a much greater reservoir area per well drilled. And we're looking to stimulate the reservoir across the area where these wells are sort of horizontally parallel. And what that does is it creates what's called a stimulated reservoir volume and a big area of rock, basically, that allows lots of water to flow across it in an even way. What that does is it allows the fluid to pick up a huge amount of heat. So when it comes up the production well, that fluid has a bunch of heat you can use to generate electricity. What we are doing is trying to target this technology to areas that are hot, but not necessarily full of this natural fracture, natural permeability. And because of that, we can develop in a lot more places. So our hope is that you know, rather than going and drilling a one-off project, which is expensive because you have to set up the supply chain, you have to do the subsurface analysis, you have to go do the exploration for a single project, we can actually start doing a much more basin development approach where we go build project after project in the same basin. And so that ends up favoring our economics in a really interesting way and allows us to make subsequent projects a lot less expensive than initial projects. That's fascinating. It seems like being able to unlock some of those cost curve declines is pretty valuable. It seems like another aspect that maybe our listeners might be interested in is the potential flexibility of these geothermal resources. It can cover for wind and solar when they're not producing, and it can respond quickly to changes in output. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how that might be a valuable aspect of what geothermal can bring? Absolutely. It's a hugely valuable potential aspect. So there's an existing geothermal power plant in Hawaii. It's an ORMAT power plant in Puna. And what ORMAT did with that plant is they actually installed a bypass on the surface facility. So they basically continue to go through their cycle of injecting cold water, letting it flow across cracks in the reservoir, pulling it up a production well as hot water. But instead of continuously generating electricity, when the grid doesn't want electricity or doesn't need electricity or doesn't value it, they flip the bypass and they just send that hot water straight from the reservoir on the way up. They send it back into their injection well to go back into the reservoir and they just bypass the electricity generation process on surface. One of the things that I know, Ned, you're familiar with because you know Wilson Ricks and are familiar with his work is that he's doing a lot of research based on can you actually do some of this dispatchable work in the subsurface. What that looks like is you end up potentially choking a production well. So instead of just producing at full bore all the time to create a baseload resource, you end up choking the production well when there is diminished load on the grid. You continue to inject into your geothermal system, effectively swelling the system. So you're pushing more and more and more water into it with the idea that when you open the production, you end up getting a much higher power capacity production than you initially would. So that serves two functions. One, you cut back your generation during a diminished load time, which means that you are able to help ease tension on the grid when, say, there's a ton of solar on the grid. So that's one reason to do it. And then another is you end up getting enhanced power production capacity, which is kind of cool. You know, if you're if your system's designed for 30 megawatts and you can oversize your surface facilities and actually produce 40 megawatts when the system is producing, that would be pretty great. I want to go back to something you, you briefly touched on earlier about how the IRA has leveled the playing field between geothermal and solar and wind. Can you just dive into that a little bit more? What exactly in that bill is attractive to geothermal? Yeah, absolutely. It's been 
pretty groundbreaking for us. So geothermal for the longest time has benefited from investment tax credits and production tax credits. And they are different in investment tax credit. The eligible tax basis is capital invested. So if my project costs 10 million bucks and I have a 30% investment tax credit, I am eligible for a tax credit based on a third of my capital invested. A production tax credit does the tax calculated on the back end. So based on what I end up producing, my tax credit is calculated off of that. So for the longest time, geothermal has been allowed to elect whether to use an investment tax credit or production tax credit. The investment tax credit has been set at 10%, not 30%, like the example that I gave. 10% of capital invested has been our ITC. And our PTC, our production tax credit, has been set at two and a half cents per kilowatt hour. Now that production tax credit has inexplicably come on and then gone off and come on and gone off. And the investment tax credit has not sunsetted, which means that it's been in place and doesn't need to be renewed every year. Production tax credit had to go before ways and means in Congress and be extended or terminated on an annual basis. So there's massive uncertainty because of this. Production tax credit is more substantial than the investment tax credit. So operators would typically pick to utilize the production tax credit. Now with the production tax credit coming on and going off, it's pretty unreliable, especially with the long development cycle project, you know, whether you would actually have a PTC to utilize when a project comes online. And so it makes it really, really hard to deal in any sort of financing that banks on tax credits, like the tax equity markets. What's really interesting now because of the IRA is that we have been elevated from an investment tax credit to the same playing field as solar. So we have, it's a little bit complicated because there are a lot of caveats, but basically a 30% investment tax credit guaranteed that you hit certain wage requirements and things like that. And then you have a few bonus opportunities to actually elevate it above the 30% level based on domestic manufacturing and things like that. And then our production tax credit was actually, it's the same value, but it was extended. So we actually have the same PTC in place for the next two years. And then thereafter, it actually extends for a number of years. And so we just have a lot more certainty at this point in time that whether we choose to use the investment tax credit or production tax credit, the thing will actually be in place. And from an ITC perspective, is much more substantial than it used to be. So it's just provided a lot more certainty on the financing front for us. And you know, you can see that reflected in the market with a record number of power purchase agreements being signed in the last two years. Awesome. I want to pivot a little bit and touch on workforce now. So you mentioned at the start that you came from an oil and gas background. I come from oil and gas as well. I think geothermal gets touted as this solution that offers a lot of opportunities for people to transition from oil and gas into geothermal. Is that true? What do you see of this? How similar is the work that Fervo is doing to what is done in traditional oil and gas? It's absolutely true. So I can personally speak to ability to transition from oil field service career to a geothermal energy development career. And I sort of thought I'd hit the jackpot when I found Fervo because what other renewable energy would utilize the technical skills I had developed in the field? quite like geothermal can with my oil field service career. Actually, just yesterday, we were on a Liberty Energy field site in the DJ Basin in Colorado. And it's pretty cool to be on that site and be so familiar with it from my past experience, knowing that we're going to use a crew just like that for our geothermal projects in the future. So, you know, you can think about me on the corporate 
outside. And I'm working in an office today with geologists who used to work at Exxon and a facilities engineer who used to work at Chevron and a CFO who used to work at NOV. It's a, it's a pretty sweet synergistic industry experience to be able to transition from corporate side of oil and gas to corporate side of geothermal power development. But in the field, it's actually also really an easy transition. You know, we'd like to talk about how when our HMP flex rig rolled onto site, that was a crew that was used to drilling oil and gas wells. And it took us, you know, a couple hours of basically safety training in a shack on site to train them about what we were doing and what the operations were. And then they got to work just as they always would. And there was actually a surprisingly huge amount of pride on site that these guys were using their skills what they know, what they have a high capability of doing on a day-to-day basis, but to do it for a different purpose of drilling zero carbon energy wells. And it was pretty cool to see the pride of ownership across our rig crew, across our cementing wireline, any crew that was out there realizing that they were just doing the job that they were used to doing, but for renewable energy, I think was pretty exciting to all involved. That's so cool to hear, I think, but something that you hear a lot about in discussions is about what the jobs impact of the clean energy transition might look like, especially for communities that have heavy fossil fuel industries. And so to see how geothermal is a place where those skills can be repurposed towards low carbon jobs is pretty cool to hear. I think on that front too, we've got a lot of our listeners in the Wharton community, particularly the MBAs are of a similar background to what you were a few years ago, that they have been in fossil area in traditional energy for several years and then come to the MBA and are thinking about their next steps. But then we also have some who are pretty new, who don't necessarily have that kind of a technical background. I'm curious whether you have any recommendations for MBAs who are looking to dive in these kinds of companies like Fervo or otherwise who are tackling really tricky engineering challenges. What is really the value add in your mind of the MBA? I mean, there are a million and one things that an MBA can do in the energy transition and climate space right now. It is pretty wild to me how often I I talk to MBAs and they say, really, where can I go apply my skills? And my answer is, where do you want to apply your skills? Because it's really likely that there's a position that's open for you in that area. I mean, there's so much going on in the variable renewable energy space, enhancing wind and solar and their ability to store their power on the lithium ion battery side. There's an incredible amount of innovation that's happening in the firm clean power space, in nuclear energy, in geothermal energy, in even sort of outdated technologies like hydropower. Really cool things going on that are sort of novel and new, especially now that the pie is a lot bigger for all of these renewable energies to sort of take place together. We often like to say, you know, even though we're competing with these other industries. We're actually a complement rather than a competitor. And that's because the load in the United States is only growing, especially as we electrify everything. And it's a hugely challenging problem that all of these technologies have to be a part of to really work to solve it. Now, there's a ton of other really cool things happening that are sort of energy adjacent that we really need smart brains on. I mean, one of the things that I spend a ton of time doing is thinking about the regulatory markets that are solving how we're going to actually solve these problems. 
in advance of actually solving them. So if you if you look at geothermal energy, we have had a really intense procurement wave over the last six months. And the main reason for that is the California Public Utilities Commission in June of 2021 passed a regulatory mandate requiring all California-based load-serving entities to procure between them one gigawatt of firm, clean power. And this was to be non-weather dependent, non-battery storage energy. So all of a sudden, California load-serving entities looking around saying, oh man, we've got to procure this thing that there's really not that much of in the United States. You know, there are only so many nuclear contracts, hydropower contracts, geothermal contracts that they can choose from. And so what's really interesting is that has actually driven a huge commercial demand for these industries that are going to be really, really important if we truly want to replace coal and natural gas. And the reason that I bring it up when you ask me this question is California Public Utilities Commission is having a really hard time figuring out how they're actually going to meet California's 100% renewable portfolio standard goal. And I actually think it would be incredibly interesting to take your MBA skill set and go in on the ground floor of that conversation and say, all right, looking at demand response and grid scaling and all of these different renewable energies, how are we actually going to get California off coal? It's a huge question, especially when you think about decarbonizing the last 20, 30, 40% of the grid as EVs put a whole new enhanced load on the grid at the same time. So I think anything in the regulatory space is super cool. There's a huge amount of interesting stuff going on in the government right now between Jigger Shaw's loan programs office and the Department of Energy that would be really cool to go work for two years out of MBA. So really the possibilities are truly and totally limitless. And if you need help brainstorming, just give me a call. So I love that reference to the importance of doing the policy work as somebody in a policy PhD. I got to echo that. There's a ton to work on, but over to you, Ben. So we're going to switch it up a little bit for our last question. This is our chance to get to know you a little bit better on a personal level. So we're all about energy here on the Wharton Current. And our question is, what gives you energy, Sarah? <laughs> awesome question. A couple of things give me energy. One, I am incredibly energized by this momentum we have in the energy transition space. Two and a half years ago, I was sitting at an oil field service company and it was so clear that the upper management of that oil field service company was just simply not taking energy transition seriously. They were saying, oh, this is a fad. This is something that is not going to last for a substantial period of time. And that's so disheartening because you, as a person who loves energy and thinks that there's a lot of optimism around climate, and it's horrible to hear that it's a fad. I think in the last two and a half years, it is very clear that this is not a fad. While it's very clear also, this is going to be an incredibly hard problem to solve. I think that there are a lot of solutions emerging and creative policies around how we can actually get those solutions implemented that make this something that I really do think that we're going to accomplish. And I have a lot of optimism around. I deal with so many conversations in Houston, Texas about how we're going to be on fossil fuels for a long time. And that's true. We are going to be on fossil fuels for a long time. And if you're an MBA who's passionate about fossil fuels and doing fossil fuels better, like I would just encourage you to go back into that because it's something that's really, really important to continue to power our earth and will be. But there's so much momentum and energy transition that gets me really excited. And I'm excited by the fact that we're really starting to focus also on firm clean in addition to variable renewable energy. And then the jobs piece actually really motivates me and energizes me too. You know, I spent four years on an oil field site 
the blue collar workers who basically, when they were working in oil and gas, were highly compensated individuals. And when they got laid off or when they quit, there were very few employment opportunities for them in Idaho Falls or Rexburg or you know Provo, Utah, or different areas of Utah. And they were going back home to do plumbing and construction work, you know, maybe trucking or other various road construction activities. And I am really motivated by standing up a zero carbon energy that can put all of those people back to work in sustainable jobs, don't necessarily rely on a boom and bust cycle to keep them employed and highly compensated. So that's one of the main reasons that I wake up in the morning. And it's one of the main reasons that I come to work and keep building projects. And it makes it so that bad days are really not that bad, fighting for people and fighting for climate. And it's a pretty sweet deal for me. That is a rousing, rousing way to end. And just lastly, Sarah, tell us where people should look if they want to learn more about Fervo. Well, we've got a website, www.fervoenergy.com, that actually just got a new look. We also have LinkedIn and Twitter, and you know, you all should feel free if you're really interested in geothermal to reach out to Ben or Ned and get my info because I'm happy to talk to anybody at any point. Thank you so much for sharing those thoughts and sharing more about Fervo and what you guys are up to. We're just really excited to be able to share all that with our listeners. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks again to Sarah for joining us. As she said, if you'd like to learn more about Fervo and what they're up to, go to their websites, fervoenergy.com. And if you like this conversation, spread the good word online. You can find us and tag us at The Wharton Current on Instagram and at Wharton Current on Twitter. And that's it for us in 2022. We've loved sharing the world of energy with you across our 17 episodes this year. And we've got a real bumper crop in store for January. So stay tuned. Happy holidays and looking forward to seeing you again in the new year.